Yeah, let's circle back. Uh, I think, you know, just like how the Great Will makes a cycle of rebirth and death, we go from the beginning of the game to the end. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. There's a, uh, there's a storytelling concept where you can tell the concept of a macro-level thing with micro-level storytelling. You know, like how you can get the vibe of a city from one person in that city's life. Or how you can get the idea of many people in the city's life from the vibe of a city. So I think that Elden Ring actually follows those storytelling tenets really well with the idea of how it, it gets into the, all of its different themes really tightly with like these individual character study storylines. And then those all tie back into the major overarching theme of the main story. No, wait, 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 well, well the, Black the Black Knives fleeing is because they just killed Godwin. They just killed him. Oh no, they just so, killed Godwin. Uh, they killed Godwin, yeah. You got me. This is like four who different- Who the fuck is Godefroy? You'll tell me who Godefroy is. Well, if you think about it, the the Pharaoh's Lockstones are sort of in a way equivalent to the the little imp statue, the stone daggers that you get to use to unlock secret pathways and secret treasures. And, hey, uh, alright. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That makes too much sense. And no one has <laughs> talked about it. Don't Is drop it? these bombs on me. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Roundtable Hold. Tonight you are listening to episode 3 of Elden Ring's an Elden Ring discussion. Uh, this is Gideon the Half-Knowing and my co-host, Cosmosis. Uh, tonight we, we will be discussing Elden Ring lore. Uh, how are you doing, Cosmosis? Uh, I'm doing really good. I'm uh, really excited to kind of hear your thoughts on uh, on the lore document you wrote and then on Elden Ring lore in general. It's definitely uh, a lot to unpack with uh, you know such a big subject, so I'm pretty excited to get into it. Yeah, I am too. It's been, uh, I think my major motivation for getting back online in the first place was to talk about Elden Ring and its lore and its gameplay. So doing this episode has been an exciting thing for me. Nice. Well, um, I guess one of the first things I wanted to ask before we got into the actual lore itself, um, for those of you out there that don't know, there is like a, an incredibly long and well-written uh, lore document over on Reddit um, that we'll post a link to in the uh in the description but i kind of wanted to figure out like what your inspiration was for doing that because it doesn't seem like an easy or quick project it looks like a lot of time was put into it and a lot of thought was put into it so i was kind of wondering you know what what was behind that uh that's a really good question um essentially it's like my first playthrough i was really just sort of awed by the fact that they were we're able to design a game like Elden Ring that throws you into its world with no prior knowledge about how anything works, even down to like how the weird and vague magic system works with glintstone sorcery and demigods and empyreans. And by the end of the game, you can have twists like Gurank being Malakath or Destined to Death being like where it is, or America being Radagon, that can actually work as twists, even though they're matter-of-factly said to you, because of how the game's laid out. And that just, that took me in so much that I just had to try and figure out all of the depths of the lore. And... Nice. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's really cool. I think uh, in my first playthrough, I definitely got the big picture of like what was going on, who the Tarnished were, 
you know, what was going on with the demigods. You know, I had a general understanding of, uh, you know, what, what Ronnie, what her part was in the, in the shattering and, you know, and how all of that came about. So I got like a pretty good general idea, but things like Radagon being Merica and, you know, some of the other quest lines and learning how other characters are intertwined. You know, Hyatta, for instance, those for me didn't come until, you know, second, third, and fourth playthroughs. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. I feel like it's pretty easy to get, like, the general idea, even though it's a little confusing. But then when you really get into it, I feel like there's a lot of hidden, you know, story, per you know, per usual for a Souls-like game. Um, what I think is really interesting is, like you say, there's, like, a, there's a veiled side of the lore, and then there's a very much more obvious side of the lore. Uh, in Dark Souls 1, you sort of see that play out as the divine prophecy that France gives you as the one that's loudly spoken, but if you go to New Londo and you can figure out its history and figure out how calf works, then you can get this whole secret, is the Dark Age of Man really an evil thing type story? But it's all mysterious. And uh, I think Elden Ring really brings that much more front and center. You know, you have your typical path of following the two fingers wisdom to become lord um and that path takes you all the way to the morgate boss fight and afterwards you have this moment of doubt where melina tells you that you have to burn the earth tree and you can figure out that you can take the frenzied flame but other than that it's a pretty straightforward approach and by doing it you can get the basic gist of all of the different stories like you learn in Raya Lucaria how Ranallo went mad, how Rykar turned to blasphemy, how Radan uh, falls to madness from the flame and from the scarlet rot, you know? You learn about how Godric, uh, you know, surrendered to Millennia and how his grafting is some foul thing. But, you know, there's some secrets you might never learn that are, like, part of that veiled side. Like, who is Mikola? Who's Millennia? You might find a little bit about Mog, the Lord of Blood, either in the uh, the catacombs, like the Shunning Grounds beneath Mindel, or in Nicola's like Nokron City. Well, I guess I should say it's Mog's secret place in Nokron that he takes Nicola to. But like that's all like the more secret side of it. That's harder to get down. And uh, even the Frenzied Flame has its own mysteries that you have to learn through a like a secret side quest with Hyetta. That's sort of hard to complete. One of the things that I like about those secret, you know, lore and plot lines that you had mentioned is the foreshadowing, um, you know, at the beginning of the game with the, the title screen. I think it's really cool how they foreshadow some of those hidden plot lines. One of the things in particular, which I was I was doing some research into today, someone had a theory, um, Moog. So everyone thinks that Mikola is inside that sack down in like Moog's blood palace. And this guy, like, brought up this whole thing where he's like, yeah, but in the title screen, like, Moog is carrying that sack, but, like, Mikola is not inside of it. And he had this whole theory how it wasn't Mikola, which I thought was really interesting. I think it definitely needs some more work, but it was an interesting topic. Have you have you heard anything about that? No, I haven't read a theory like that. I was under the impression that it was most likely Mikola and that the content for it was cut for a DLC with Dreams. But that's fascinating that there's a theory that just outright claims that he's not in the rebirth in Kukun, because it's like, where is he? And that'd be like a pretty big misdirect. Yeah, he thought it was um, in the chair above like the, the phantom version of Godfrey, where you get the Laws of Regression spellbook. 
he thought huh. that the body in that was Mikola. I have to send you some links over to the theory. It was fairly interesting, and you know, he brought in just the appearance of the uh, the characters, um, as well as you know some of the stuff from the the intro theme and a few other things where he kind of brought it together. And he was like, "I could be right or I could be wrong, but enough of it made sense that I was like, huh, that's an interesting take." But it's kind of cool that some of the stuff is so hidden it it leads people just to kind of create these theories and see what they can find which i think in part although almost all of your lore document seems to have sources for all of it i think there is like some interesting speculation in there which i thought was pretty cool yeah i think that's like one of the core things i like a lot about the Soulsborne games is that there's at some point at some level there's going to be an, a, a leap of faith in your logic where you have to speculate on how one thing attaches to another and from that speculation you know you can come up with how a story emerges and obviously with this guy you know he focused on how Mikola's connection to Radagon and like the law of regression and how that was embodied in the golden order principia above Godfrey so it's just fascinating to see how you can you know when you scope in on different years of the lore to try and look at it you can find a lot of different stories that emerge one of the uh the major ones and i do want to start getting into maybe some of the chronological you know history um without with the lore but one of the major ones that kind of i thought was the most interesting was at you know at what point did merica become radagon or radagon become merica or like was it like that the whole time like, I feel like that concept isn't really explained. Like, I know that it's said that they're one and the same. But, like, for me, and I don't, I don't even necessarily think this is based on anything in particular in the game. But to me, it seems like at one point they definitely were separate. But I've also heard theories that they always were one and the same. And I think that's, like, a really interesting topic. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that one. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think Merica's identities is one of the most contentious part of the Elden Ring debate, like, and how the, how it ties into the lore, because Merica, as the eternal queen of Landol and the Golden Order, is the most pivotal and central character of the entire plot. So who she is and what she does affects how you read everything else, because it all ties back to her. Like, there's one of the two finger maidens in the Altus Plateau has this quote where she's, like, talking about Rykard and Morgat, but she ends it with saying that it all comes from the curse of Merica, you know, the curse of what she's done when making the Golden Order. If that's mm -hmm. bad or good, do you condemn her, do you not? It depends on the ending you choose. Personally, I think that Merica was always Radagon. I think that there's intentionally no mention of, um, like, a, a wedding or anything, and... Like, because Merica's bed chambers are so removed, I think it makes sense that they would be one and the same from the beginning. I know that that's a pretty contentious thing to say, but I think it's, uh, I think it, along with Merica being the Glomide Queen, is, like, the best way to read into a lot of the Elden Ring lore, and it's what I've based my documents on in most of its reading. Um, no, I thought that was another interesting thing, too, is how you got to the conclusion that Merica was the Glomide Queen, because I've seen a couple people with that similar thought that you had, and then I've also seen the opposite, where some people were like, well, it would have been impossible for her to be the Glomide Queen. So I'd, I'd definitely like to, to break that down a little bit more as well, and how you reach that conclusion. I think that's a really big, important topic to discuss as well. I think really the best way to approach it is to start from the beginning, though, uh, from, you know, the very, very beginning, in the age of ancients, you know, the prehistory of Elden Ring. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. Where uh, where does it start? <laughs> well, as Hayata says, uh, when she get receives the wisdom of the three fingers from the burnt Elden Lord, well, will be Elden Lord. She says that everything came from the one great, and from that came fractures and births and souls. And I think that line's pretty important because it's uh, it implies. Uh, but everything stems from one being. And when you compare that to the Golden Order's fundamentalism, how it re- knows about the law of regression and the laws of causality, it makes sense to understand that everything that happens is fracturing from the same, like, original slate, you know? But the yeah, regression factor. Yeah, exactly. But the regression factor will always make it yearn to go back. And I think that that manifests itself within the actual world as the misery and the horrible things that happen that lead people to accepting the frenzied flame into themselves. Mm-hmm. And it even describes the frenzied flame at times as a curse. Like the merchant caravan um, that was imprisoned deep beneath Landel in the Tomb of the Three Fingers was imprisoned because, in part due to their worship, or at least the reflection of the frenzied flame, whether that was willing for many of them or not. So I actually saw this Reddit post a while back after recording our second episode. It was really fascinating. It essentially said that when Hayata mentions the one great, that might be Placidusix, essentially. And I mean, that's something that That, I think a lot of people assumed at this point. But it goes from that to say that Placidusix, because of his position in the, the arena, like, you know, his boss fight, his position matches that of the two fingers, you know, the general, the way that they arch. And we know that Placidusix once had five heads. Uh, he theorizes that the other three ancient dragons mentioned from the ancient dragon war, Lanciax, Fortisax, and Grantsax, were all once part of Placidusix. You know, they went to Landol and attacked. Grantsax died in the attack. They were then routed on the field of Altus Plateau. Before the Sax was defeated and joined the ancient, like, joined the Landol. And then finally, somewhere in Lyernia, perhaps, or somewhere in Rygard's area, Lanciax was defeated, and she also joined the ancient dragon cult. Anyway, in that way, you end up with the two fingers and the three fingers. I left a comment on it that was sort of elaborating based off of my own views of it, but essentially, if you imagine uh, the major bridge between the prehistory and the age of the Erda tree is the birth of the Erda tree, but that's only allowed by the birth of the greater will and its influence on the world, which begins with the Elden Beasts crashing into Feramazula. Or, well, the Elden Beast crashing into Feramazula is in and of itself a speculation. What long ago, this Feramazula was struck by a meteorite, and long ago, in a, fa- in a reign of stars, the Elden Beast was most likely sent to the lands between. Right. And um, it fits that it would have hit the Feramazula as Placidusix was the first Elden Lord. And um, from him being the first Elden Lord comes the beginning of history, because from Placidusix becoming the Elden Lord begins a similar chain of events that go back to Dark Souls 1's uh, birth of the first flame. It's the ending of the Age of Ancients, where everything was grey and undefined, where everything was sort of held in stasis, and it's the beginning of history, you know? Like, the greater will allows for runes to exist, it allows for 
um, the two fingers to follow its wisdom, and possibly due to the due to it being able to allow the runes, a stretch of logic could be that Placidusix used the rune of rebirth or unbirth. The Renala's great rune. Right. He uses that rune to rebirth himself in, with into Empyrean flesh, and that form is the two fingers. And then the three fingers are cleansed from that form to lock away the frenzied flame. Because if Placidusix is the beginning of everything, then he would be, like, that's where everything stems from, including the frenzied flame, including, uh, you know, all sorts of different ancient powers of the world. It's a very big stretch of logic. <laughs> well, it, I mean, the thing is, is that it does make sense. Like listening to it, it, it does uh, make sense to me. And just kind of as a as a side note, um, I know you kind of jumped back into Dark Souls there for a second, but I was thinking about the fact that you were talking about the, you know, the fracturing and how it, you know, it all comes from, you know, the same point, but then it eventually always wants to return to that point. And I, I think that's like the overall theme in, in Dark Souls as well with, you know, rekindling the flame and then, you know, like whether or not you're going to be in that age or in the age of darkness, but that you're constantly like cycling through them and that it's, it's con it happens over and over again. It seems like that is kind of a, like a parallel plot line to, you know, based on what you just described, or at least that's what I got from it. I think that's, uh, I think that's a very fair comparison, you know, there's just an endless cycle of complexity and new fractures and new things that can come from cycling the same thing. You know, it's like the same but different every time, as if you branch out and then regress and then branch out and then regress and then branch out, but all in the same patterns as before, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think helps it make sense, like I can see like where Plas... I have such a bad hard name pronouncing his name. So the other thing that makes sense with Placidusix uh, you know, separating with the dragons is, yeah, the five fingers are, you know, the three fingers and the two fingers are blatantly part of the same thing. Like, like there's, like, no question in anyone's mind, I would hope, that, uh, you know, they were at one point, you know, five fingers and then, you know, had separated. Yeah, and what's fascinating is that the only mention of the five fingers in the game is this vague illusion. It's the, it's the, uh... Oh, it's got like a funky name. I can't remember. It's like the Cinqueta. And it's the knife that Gurank uses. That when he stabs into his medallion, he can it turns into the hilt of his black blade when he turns into Malakath. Hmm. But that's called the Cinqueta, and it's supposed to look like five fingers to symbolize the intelligence once granted to the beastmen. So I if you remember Placidusix, yeah. So if you remember Placidusix as like the god of the beastmen then it makes sense that he would be aligned with the concept of the five fingers, but that's been so long forgotten because they only know the two fingers because the two fingers were purified and cleansed of their three-finger form during the War of the Ancient Dragons. It's like... <laughs> Something even more fascinating is that the five fingers that Malekith has on his dagger, uh, that only makes up the hilt. What the blade is, is this sort of black it looks like the red black essence of destined death you know the stuff that comes out of his black blade yep and the fact that the blade the knife that has a hand when it stabs into his hilt like into his rune it draws out the blade that has the rune of death you know it's like he's grasping destined death mm -hmm. yeah, and you know it's cool. like, yeah <laughs> 
I think that gets into some of like the sort of like symbolism that's used in the game that even the developers are sort of vague on. It's just like the endless sort of like what if because that mm-hmm. red tint of dust and the death matches primordial gold, according to one of the Crucible Knights uh, mm-hmm. descriptions. Okay. And primordial gold as, an, as a concept is supposed to be the same. Like primordial gold is Placidusix. He was the ancient dragon with the golden scales, and the holiest of the ancient dragons were the ones that had golden scales that, you know, took after Placidusix. Yeah. So if he if primordial gold was tinted red, then it sort of gets into this vague concept that the only true immortality is death. Like, you know, like a true death is some I don't know, like a true death permanently ends something, but that permanence is like the only immortality it feels like is sort of the theme, but like it's very vague and I find it fascinating. You know, when I I read that I was like, "Oh." <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I guess I was surprised there. I thought you were saying, I thought you were about to say that, like, you, you know, you take the death and then there's, like, rebirth. I was surprised to, to hear you say that the the death, the, the eternal death is, like, you know, the only permanent thing going on. I, I, I pictured it going the other way just because it, like you said, everything sort of, like, fractals itself and you end up seeing, seeing it later. Well, no, I, I, guess, so. I guess what you said makes sense. I, I, I think I get where you're going with it. But no, I mean, you've got a really good take on it, too, is the thing. It's, um, like, in the prehistory, essentially, they have this cycle of birth and re- of death and rebirth in the form and it of was, the, And uh, it was celebrated, too. Like, um, you know, down in uh, Nokron, or, the, you know, where the ancestral spirits are and stuff, and the buds and all that, like, they celebrated death because it was rebirth. And then you have, like, I guess that interesting concept of, like, Merica, like, essentially, like, kind of, like, banning death, right? And you know, just trying to is am I wrong on that one? She, she no, no, you're totally right. Helped like lock away the rune of death and tried to prevent death from happening, which I think like really screwed up the cycle that they had going. And I think there's like a lot of different cultures within the game that all kind of like celebrated death in their own way and its cycle, but it always ended up with like some kind of rebirth. And I think by her and the greater will trying to stop death from happening is you know probably the start of like this downhill thing that needs to get sorted out although it is still probably part of this greater cycle no i mean that's a that's really well put i um one of the how people deal with death is one of the major themes of elden ring it's brought up in pretty much every single type of ending philosophy you know how the cycle will continue is like what matters um and in the prehistory, you can see it really defined in variations before the Golden Order folds everything into itself. Because you have, like you say, you've got the Scarlet Rot, which is worshipped by both those people. By Essentially, it's worshipped by the past. It's worshipped by um, a sort of no longer existent cast of nobles that would have built the old palace. And they wore like fungal attire as, you know. Yep. Uh, imagery to worship the Scarlet Goddess, and then you've got the ancestral followers who follow the rebirth aspect of that. They know that in every rebirth is death, that the spirits that they follow, the ancestral spirits that have the buds grow from their horns, are born of death that comes from the rot and you know the eventual death of everything. Yeah. It kind of makes the greater will seem somewhat imperial to be like locking these other, like if you don't accept the greater will then whatever you believe in, we're going to lock you into the far corners of the world. 
you know, so you there's don't. Even, there's even a quote from America that says that exactly. It's so good. It's um, it's somewhere near the Dectus Lift. Uh, in Mel, you know, when Melissa says in America's own words, the choice is fine. Become one with the order, or divest thyself of it. To wallow at the fringes, a powerless upstart. Like, you have the option to leave the order at any time. You have the option to go your own way, but the greater will imposes a permanence on it, you know, an imperialist ultimatum. You know, you no longer have the option of choosing to live as you will. You have to, you know, you have to follow the way or you have to rebel against it. There's no in between. And rebelling typically results in, yeah, you being pushed to the fringes, you know, on the outer 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 skirts of of wherever and even yeah. then you're hunted you know prider reichard was known for being an inquisitor and the volcano manor is filled with scarlet rotted albinorex it's filled with omens it's filled with their omen killers you know it's like it's not a good place to be and it, you don't get away because everywhere in the lands between is ruled except for the eternal cities by the end and even the nameless eternal city was destroyed mm-hmm um, well, I say the nameless Eternal City was destroyed, but I say that in the sense that it was destroyed far before the other Eternal Cities, to the point yeah. where its name was forgotten. Uh-huh. I gotcha. So, alright, so we start in the Age of the Ageless, I mean in the Age of the Ancients. Um, we got the theory that Placidusix, you know, was probably the start of the, the Two Fingers and the Three Fingers when, when the Elden Beast crashes into Fair Missoula. Um, so I guess kind of following that comes the age of the the air tree and the, the glimpses into the primordial cor- currents. So I don't know if you want to uh, explain that a little bit. Yeah, uh, let me just, I guess we should start with the birth of the air tree, you know, because it's essentially, there's this quote that says that the air tree was born in an age of warfare, you know, like where Godfrey was lord of the battlefield. Wait, I guess just to clear this up, you know, f- for me, because I'm I'm learning, you know, some of the the pockets of the lore, um, you know, just as our as our listeners are. But the age of the air tree and the the air tree um, being born is after America's already, you know, become the vessel for that. Correct? Yes, it is. So yeah, so now that we've covered the age of the ancients, how does that transition into the age of the air tree and America? And you know, I kind of feel like you know, where we come into the game. Actually, I guess we come in a little bit after that, but anyways, how does it transition? Well, you know, it's you're sort of right and you're wrong, because the Tarnished are actually very important right from the get-go at the beginning of the Age of the Earth Tree, but they don't actually do anything, at least from the player character's perspective, until way after in the Shattering War. Or after the Shattering War, when they have to reclaim the Elden Ring. The beginning of the, uh... The beginning of the Age of the Earth Tree is begins with the greater will and more especially the elden beast uh something that i think is very important to the lore and that is very understated is that there's a spell one of the primeval sorceries called the founding reign of stars and it's found in the uh the mountaintop of giants where the astrologers made their home next to the fire giants you know right next to like the astrologers town And it's past the Forbidden Lands, you know, this is a place that's beyond the ken of mortal men, that's never supposed to be touched again by people in the Golden Order that don't know the secrets, you know. This is your player committing heresy and finding out the things that were supposed to be covered up, and that's very, like, much said 
within the Heretic's Rise, where you find the, the founding reign of stars, where essentially the first primeval sorcerer, an ancient astrologer, peered into the primeval stream, and his glimpse became reality, and that called a rain of stars down upon the land, and a hint of amber is what it says. And from that, that hint of amber, I speculate that that hint of amber is the creation, the birth of the greater will, because you can compare this primeval sorcerer to the uh, essentially this um, customary gown of the nobles of the Altus Plateau, and the Landel, where it says that it was the custom of a small kingdom long ago to like, you know, dress their like, dress up like the sage that founded it. And you also find the flock talisman somewhere on the Altus Plateau, I believe, which essentially states that there was this founder of a religion that eventually became inspired by his own people, like his own followers. You know, you can sort of imagine and speculate a story where this guy, this astrologer, he peers into the primeval stream and he creates this rain of stars that, you know, like goes across the land and scatters flintstone. But it calls the greater will too, and the greater will sends its golden star to the lands between. That might be the first birth of the sun, you know? Elden Ring and From Software likes to play with the birth and creation myth of worlds, and a lot, something very important to that is the birth of the sun. In Dark Souls 1, Gwyn is the Lord of Sunlight, and when he leaves, Gwendolyn has to create a false sun for the world in Anor Orlando. That's just an illusion, you know, it's not the same. And in Elden Ring, that golden star, you know, might have been the sun that when it was forged into the Elden Ring at the birth of the Erda Tree, it made the Erda Tree essentially the sun, you know? It's why the Erda Tree's radiance is what lights up everything. Interesting. Uh, I, uh, I like that theory. I like it a lot. I think it has... I like the idea that this primeval stage, you know, this guy that was, you know, he was doubtful of his own, what he saw, until the people that followed him, that founded a kingdom for him, uh, you know, it wasn't until they inspired him that he believed. But he founded that kingdom, Landel, not for himself, but for Merica. And that's where we really get the ball rolling. Because this is where we get into Merica being the Glomide Queen. And like you said, that's a very controversial topic. And I think she absolutely is. The first part of that is that the other major candidate for the Glomide Queen is Rani. And she is too young. You know, the god, the godskin apostles and the godskin nobles are spoken about in a very ancient way. You know, they all exist either in new locations where heresy is happening, or in very ancient locations where they might have originally existed, you know? A lot of their lore is centered around things happening long ago. Even the idea of them hunting gods doesn't fit with the Golden Order, because that by that time, the idea of the Elden Lord and the one Empyrean with the Greater Will is that there is one god and one champion of that god in the Elden Lord. Before, there were multiple gods, you know, the rock goddess, the fell god, um, and the Elden Beast was probably technically a god as it was the uh, Placidusix was its lord. But all of that changed when the Golden Order conquered everything. Like you said, the greater will is an imperialist concept. It brings everything under its own order so it might flourish, but, you know, there is no choice in it. Yeah, okay, I um, guess in that sense, yeah, I mean, I could kind of see the the connection to the Glomide Queen, but let's uh, let's break it down a little bit and get into it. Yes, okay, so essentially, we have the two fingers existing, or the five fingers at that time, and we know that the Glomide Queen was a servant of the two fingers. She's remembered as such. So, 
if we understand that as America serving the two fingers from the very beginning, um, we can see the beginning of her character. You know, everything we know about America begins with her being the eternal queen of the Golden Order, but she had to fight to make that happen. And that began, that happened with Godfrey, but who was she before she took Godfrey as her Elden Lord? Speculation on that can essentially align itself somewhat with Ronnie's storyline and Malekith and Blade and how they're similar but different. Essentially, Ronnie was raised as a step-sibling with Blade. We know that from E.G.'s dialogue about Renala, someone's dialogue about Renala, I believe. And we know that Rani, in her storyline, betrays the Golden Order because she wants to bring about something new. She finds a flaw in it and she wants to uh, break it down. Yeah, she has and no in that way, in being an Empyrean like, at all. Exactly. Which um, makes sense to me. Like, I, I can definitely see that where she's coming from and not wanting to be a, a part of something like that. I think a very powerful part of Ronnie's storyline is that she has good intentions and powerful motivations, but in the end, she is sort of naive, you know? She wants to end Merica's will because she thinks Merica has done bad things, but what does it mean to bring about the Age of Stars? Like, who will suffer? Not Ronnie, because she's in control of things, but like, what about everyone else when there is no more Erdtree or gentle radiance and it's just the long, cold, dark? It's sort of like the Age of Dark ending. Like, yeah, sure, you have to, people succumb to it, but maybe it has to happen. That's sort yeah. of up to your own uh, decision. I mean, at this point, I guess, or at least when Ronnie's making her decisions, Malekith has sealed Destined Death. And I feel like she's maybe trying to return things back to some, like a somewhat normal state. At least that's what I got out of it. And I guess this is speculation, but maybe some of those people that were pushed on the fringes, you know, be able to come back. Like maybe the Age of Stars is the Age of Stars, but it's not necessarily an imperialistic thing like the Golden Order is or the Greater Will. Um, I don't know if that that makes sense. Well, I think, uh, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, something significant about the prehistory is that was when the true storm raged, because that was when Placidusix ruled the world the ancient dragons and their endless storm. But beyond the storm was the stars, which is how the primordial sage once peered into the, you know, primordial current. For there to be no storm anymore means that when the Golden Order ends, there can be a true age of stars, if nothing else interferes with that. But, you know, one of the ideas is that, like, you know, power vacuums. If, some, if something can take power, then it might. So if Rani were to make her age of stars and, um, Mikola would have still exist. What would Mikola do about that? Uh, what would Mog do about that? That's something to consider, I think. I get where you're going with that. Because you're right, it's not imperialistic. But when it's not imperialistic, it doesn't have any strength to defend itself, so no order is upheld, which I think is one of the defenses of there being an Elden Lord. Yeah, no, that, I, that definitely uh, makes sense to me. I think that's a strong argument for it to be around. I guess, where did we leave off? So you were you were talking about Merica and maybe like who she was before Godfrey and kind of introducing Godfrey into the situation? Yes. So essentially, um, Merica, as a servant to the Two Fingers, who has always been a servant to the Two Fingers, mirrors Rani in the sense that she was most likely raised among with a step-sibling and uh, Empyrean shadow in the form of Malekith. In his very arena, we see a young girl surrounded by wolves, or beastmen, like, you know, statues. 
And I think that's supposed to show Merica being taken in by the Beastmen. And in the same way that Rani and the Knight of the Black Knives betrays the Golden Order by, you know, killing all of the demigods across the land, and most of all, Prince Godwin, Merica will eventually betray the, you know, the ancient dragons and the Beastmen at Faramazula by, you know, creating her godskin apostles and then going on her god hunt. I was just thinking about, you know, your argument of there being a greater will and like Ronnie being slightly naive. And it's like they both are making sacrifices to make, you know, what they believe in, you know, like come. I don't, I don't want to use say come true, but essentially like that's what it is. Like they're both willing to make sacrifices to 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 bring that about. I don't know if if, if that makes sense, but it's just like now that you say it. I'm, I was just like comparing their two stories and it's like I was just thinking about Godwin and the fact that Ronnie's like you know okay with sending the black knives out to get him and then America's you know okay with betraying the greater like it's just it's interesting to me that to bring about the age of whatever it is you're trying to bring about involves you know betrayal and sacrifice I, I just picked up on that and that's a really good way to describe it sacrifice you know, America has to sacrifice the gods to her cause. You know, she has to kill them all so that she might become the one god for the Golden Order. And, you know, she sacrifices so much. Even Placidusic sacrifices part of himself as he cleanses away parts. Well, the two fingers and five fingers do, if you believe that's Placidusic's or not. I'm somewhat convinced after the Reddit post, to be honest, however crackpot the theory is. But <laughs> um, if you believe. Like, even that has to sacrifice, because the Three Fingers are entombed beneath Landel. They're supposed to be entombed forever. Like, the Golden Order was not meant to fail. It was supposed to be immortal, unending, and perfect. It was supposed to match what Placidusix had, and I think that's one of the tragedies of it, you know? Merica sacrifices so much to create it. After the birth of the Erdtree, she even has to go on this imperialist war where she just kills all of the giants for almost no reason and it was pointless in the end you know it's tragic so like what then does ronnie think about how her story ends you know like she goes through everything she does to make the age of stars and we don't see what happens after that but how does she feel you know how did merica feel when she realized that the flames of the fell god would never die and that the earth tree would always be vulnerable yeah that's uh that's wild i'm, I'm just like trying to process it all now and yeah that was one of the things that led me to i don't want to say like dislike america but yeah the whole the whole imperialist thing and then yeah like killing all the giants as to you know protect the air tree like i'm i guess maybe i'm being naive here but i'm curious to find out like you know could she have negotiated with them or you know that well that that's the thing is because they worshiped another god that's what put the air tree at risk it wasn't necessarily the flame itself but it was the fact that they worship the fellow god and like uh melania said melina said i mean I, well i forget the exact quote that you would use but it was basically like get with it or get pushed to the fringes of, of society and in that case the fringes was death they just put them all to the sword because they couldn't follow with the golden order and their flame was too powerful but in, you know, an ironic twist of fate, their flame becomes embedded within the Golden Order's philosophy, even to the extent that uh, certain prophets of the Golden Order and clerics, all their divining prophecies, they can find, you know, 
incantations like catch flame. And in that description, it says that it's heretical and that they're usually banished because it's, you know, it's the prophecy that the Erd tree can burn. It's the belief and that's embedded within the root of the Erd tree. And I think part of that is, uh, I think this this is somewhat speculation and it draws a little from Dark Souls 2's story, but essentially, well, Dark Souls in general, the primordial part of the soul is the flame. Um, and in Dark Souls 3, you learn that the primordial part of the human soul is the black flame. So within Elden Ring, essentially the Erd Tree's primordial form was the crucible. And that fire is in some way linked to uh, the giants, because the crucible, the giants, and Placidusics all have some vague connection to the frenzied concept, you know, with the idea that the three fingers were cut off from the five fingers, you know, purified. And they were entombed beneath Landol, and they would over time become frenzied. But it was the containing of the power of the frenzied flame, the crucible of life, and the stealing of that energy to make the Erd tree possible. Like, it's enrooted right at the concept of it, but it's sealed away to make it safe. And then doubly sealed by making destined death impossible. It's like, it, there's so many layers to make it, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely like, like, it's definitely blowing my mind a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the pieces fit together. Um, yeah, and uh, for doubters, I think the biggest example is the Sanctuary Stone and the Frenzied Flame Stone. Essentially, they're both rocks uh, blown off of Feramazula, uh, which I think Feramazula in and of itself might, like, the concepts, um, Elden Ring takes a lot in its concept from Norse mythology and Irish mythology, which intertwined themselves. That's where, like, you know, like, you get stuff like them saying Leal Hound or God Godfrey's death painting in the intro looking like Cuolan's death scene in Irish mythology. You know, or, like, the Erd Tree itself is, you know, the frickin' Yggdrasil. But something about, about the ancient dragons is that when they were, they, you know, they're made of stone, and the beastmen would bury themselves, essentially. One of their death practices, getting back to death, is that they would put themselves in the stone. If you look around Feramazula, and also the Beast Sanctum, which is a preserved part of, like, the beastman's architecture, uh, given the, you know, Garank as a reward for his service, I'm assuming. You can see how the beastman skeletons are literally embedded in stone, probably because they're trying to mirror how, like, their gods, the ancient dragons, die as they turn the gravel stone. Yeah, I just went off on a tangent. No, it's so good. It's like I mean, I I knew I knew that about Grank already, so I was just letting you finishing the thought. But yeah, the the ideas are are really good, and I guess I'm just trying to. One thing that I never connected was the fact that all of those things went into making the air tree possible. I'm I'm thinking about it in the sense of just Elden Ring, and then I'm also thinking about it in like the sense of the world and like where that might have been drawn from. I don't really have any like solid conclusions to share about it, but like my brain is definitely like the wheels are turning. Where it's like I don't know. That's just an interesting concept where you know like America tries to. So she kills the giants, but the flame of of the fell god is kind of embedded in the idea of the air tree and then the fact that the three fingers are banished literally right beneath it is it just is incredibly interesting to me especially due to the fact that the burial watchdogs and all those tombs where all of the the people that you know die there or get placed in those tombs go back up into the air tree i don't know i'm trying to 
to picture it all and like the the cycle and flow of what's going on uh and it's i have no solid conclusions drawn but it's definitely got me thinking and i i like uh i like hearing this yeah that's my favorite thing about elden ring it just in every single part of it it gets you thinking uh, if i could just segue i had some absolutely like crackpot like vike posting level theories when i first played the game you know i thought that there's going to be a big theme about metal because the tarnished is like a theme, you know concept of like metal and gra- Godric's grafting and the Elden Ring being a metal thing, which obviously wasn't involved at all. Um, I thought that there was going to be some story about like how the minor Erd trees and the Erd tree all, were all born from the same thing, and the Erd tree was only special because it was av- alive the longest and that it needed to die so that the other ones could flourish, which is completely wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I had so I had all sorts of ideas running through my head until I finalized on this after I replayed, you know, a couple new game cycles and like did the other quests. One of my major things with the primordial flame and the crucible and how it links back to the Great at Will and the Erda Tree and how it's all linked together, I think, is from the frenzied flame ending. It desires to burn everything back together by creating the Lord of the Frenzied Flame. But what is the Lord of the Frenzied Flame? You know, like, when Melina says that the Lord of the Frenzied Flame is no Lord at all because it's a Lord of nothing alive, like, yeah, it's just that's... burning. Exactly. It's burning with everything else. It's all burning. It's all, but it's all burning. And the tarnished is burning too, you know? Like, mm-hmm. what have you burned into at that point? The Frenzied Flame drives people mad, and you've become just a single glowing circle of it. A circle that looks very reminiscent of the rune symbol, which, if we know the greater will to be linked with anything in the game, it's going to be runes. I think that there's something fascinating about the idea that you have to take this power, this frenzied flame from the three fingers, like their blessing, and it stays within you. You know, it's burning and churning and, like, destroying you internally, and you can see that in the player's eyes and the incantations that they can cast. But it's not until you get you defeat the Elden Beast and Radagon and the resistance within the Erda Tree, and you sort of cause this, you know, you reunite the two powers. The Greater Will is probably housed within Marika, and you now have the frenzied flame aspect within yourself. So when those two concepts reunite, that's when you become the true lord of the frenzied flame. And I think that's uh it's one of like the truly fascinating things parts of like it's you know it's one of the really cool parts of the ending it for sure was my favorite ending um but do you think and this could just be crackpot again i'm i'm not a lore expert by any means but do you think that is a symbolic idea of the reuniting of the five fingers or uh, now i'm now i'm like really thinking because age of stars golden order I mean, no, I actually do think so. I think that the wait, like wait. the being I, you become I'm, at the end is gone. <laughs> so if we if we think about the five fingers, like let's just think about what they could be, right? So you have like the Age of Stars, the Frenzied Flame, Destined Death, the Golden Order, and the Greater Will. That makes like five, you know, separate things. So when you like, is that does that make sense at all? Um. For a while, I tried tying the two fingers and the three fingers to different concepts. Like, the primordial flame is definitely one. Uh, the greater will would probably be one. Um, the concepts of inner and outer order are sort of important, and they're sort of represented through, like, 
glints. Uh, they're represented through glintstone, through the scarlet rot, um, somewhat in the frenzied flame. The stuff about blood might be a new concept from the Golden Order. Like, I think that might, like, Nicola might okay. legit be the god of blood. I have no idea. Because uh, there's no other reference. That's I don't, I, I wouldn't think so, but. I don't think so. I don't know. It's like, before I'm with I mothers. I think Nicola takes, I like, well, yeah, that's the thing. I think Mikola takes, like, many, like, multiple forms, like, possibly. Well, that's like, part of, that's where my theory builds off of. It's essentially, you know, Mikola has their child self, but then they also have St. Trina, and St. Trina goes by many forms in and of himself. But then we see Mikola in a rebirth in Cocoon, and we know that in Cocoons, people become, you know, like, the entire body is melted down. So that's sort of my idea, like, the formless mother literally means formless, because they are, you know. That makes sense. I, okay, well, we can get back to, we, we can get back to what we had. Maybe I just had a crackpot theory, but I, I guess my, my original question before I had the crackpot theory was more or less, you know, you were talking about Radagon and, and the greater will, and then when you get the frenzied flame ending I, I guess my question around that was do you think that's them like rejoining each other and then that's after that i was like thinking about dust and death and i was like wait maybe it's all like you know coming back together but i mean i think it is i think that's a very you know it's a very true concept it's um in you know there's essentially different two different main ending types you can become the elden lord or you can choose to destroy the golden order either through using rani's help or through using the frenzied flame and in both instances of those the golden order is only truly destroyed when merica is destroyed in rani's instance she picks up merica's head and the head turns into those you know glowing golden runes that are so reminiscent of the greater will's power probably the greater will itself perishing in that moment or at least being banished in some way you know i think it's a pretty final thing that rani does to it but in the case of uh in the case of the frenzied flame it's your character being overwhelmed by the frenzied power and they collapse in front of merica's empyrean form and then empyria's head America's head shatters and you rise as the frenzied flame, like the lord of the frenzied flame. And that's part of why, I, you know, why I agree with you. Now, you know, it's like a, re, it's a reunification of those two concepts. That might have been how the greater will was when it was first formed. And it wasn't until it sort of changed itself, possibly. I just realized something. And that is that an no fault of ours because it's such an interesting topic but we've been explaining all of this as if everyone knows what we're talking about and we kind of skipped some of of what happened like I, I don't even think we ever reached the point to like where we joined the game or or you know where where the shattering happened and all that so do we want to like take a step back and and cover the ground of of uh yeah of let's circle well? back uh, I think, you know, just like how the Greater Will makes a cycle of rebirth and death, we go from the beginning of the game to the end. <laughs> <and> the... <laughs> that works for me. Um, so I think circling back, we can do it best with Godfrey. Essentially, Merica, at the end of her being the Glomide Queen, uh, and leading the Godskin Apostles, and sort of creating the first breaks in the ancient dragon's order of many gods under the true storm, uh, she's defeated by Malekith, 
and rather than slaying her or taking her captive, Malekith joins her. He takes the power of destined death within his own blade, and he chooses to serve her, you know? Blade betrays the order that he serves by, you know, going with Rani, and it's the same thing with Malekith. Except, I guess Malekith might be betraying a different master in Placidusix, or the, but, you know, everything loops back to the Greater Will. And the Greater Will makes a circle. It, it's sort of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so after Malekith spares Merica, together they both go to what most likely the Round Table hold in Landol, and that's where they meet up with uh, Horalu. Um, so Horalu was the chieftain of the Northern Badlands. He was chosen by the Two Fingers, by Merica, on the sole idea of how powerful he was as a warrior. There was no other thing. And when he swore to become Lord, you know, the Elden Lord of the New World, he took on a new name, Godfrey of the Golden Order. And he took the beast regent Sarash uh, upon his back so that Sarash might, you know, restrain his battle lust and make him act in an, an accordingly lordly manner. Oh, keep going. <laughs> I will. Okay. So, yeah, um, Godfrey is now. You know, he's now married to Merica. He's sworn to become Elden Wait. Lord. I just huh? thought of something. Somehow, we have to put the story of Elden Ring into, like, a child's, like, book. And then we can, like, read it to our kids when we go to bed. <laughs> or when they go to bed. Oh, we should have. <laughs> Sorry, I was just, like, when I was telling you to keep going, like, that just popped in my head where I was, like, the story's so good, like... I want to hear more. It's like, oh, I could maybe read this the story of the air tree and the golden order to my kids when they go to sleep. No, oh, it was a good interruption. <laughs> you know, just turn back some of the violence and depressing stuff. We got a pretty entertaining story. Yeah, it could definitely become a classic, classic book to read at night. But uh, all right, I'll let you get back to it. So yeah, Godfrey is the first Elden Lord, but he's also the first Tarnished, as we know from the intro painting and from him as the final boss. He's Horalu, he's a Tarnished, just like us. And in that way, his warriors are the Tarnished. All of the Tarnished were a warrior, was a warrior once because they served Godfrey in the war to create the Golden Order. They were in the original army. You know, they would fight with him even to the point where he was banished from the Golden Order when he won all of his wars. But it would surely begin um, circling back to the uh, the ancestral spirit and how it creates buds. The Erida tree was once a bud, you know, but it had the powers of the greater will, the Elden Ring and everything uh, grafted onto it in some way. You know, it was combined with... It's hard to fully explain. Um, this actually gets into somewhat of a controversial thing. I think that was started by Vadi Vidya. When he's like put his great tree theory forward, which is essentially the great tree is mentioned in three different item descriptions, and it most likely doesn't exist. It's probably just the Erda tree. But upon further examination, I really I'm gonna put the YouTuber or whatever post I found down below if I can find it. But it essentially states that when upon when examining the the translation, it's probably stating that the Great Tree existed, and then when the Elden Ring was forged, it became the Erda Tree. It was a bud that had something grafted onto it. And that can be sort of compared to what we know of the Halleg Tree, which was a bud that was then watered by, Mik by Mikola's blood, and that made it into the Halleg Tree eventually. Um, which was supposed to be like a, a separate Erda Tree in and of it, 
itself, correct? It was it was just going to be an air tree free of the the greater will or the golden or I I forget where I'm where I got this from. Yeah, so essentially, so uh, right down to the name of it, essentially, the Erda Tree, Mikola's theory on the Erda Tree is that the Erda Tree is what would become the center of the Golden Order's worship, but because it was a flawed existence, because it was doomed to someday die, that would invite the Scarlet Rot and the, uh, the Curse of the Omens and the issues with undeath and rebirth into the Order, and that would like eventually destroy the Order. And that was Mikola's fear. So what he thought he could do was that he could become the new Empyrean god of the Golden Order, but he would replace the Erda tree with his own Halig tree. Erda tree, the prefix Erd means world, but Halig, that prefix means holy. So he has this idea that the Halig tree will no longer have any other idea than it, have any other purpose than to be symbolic of the you know protection of the golden order and to follow that you know he makes it a sort of holy land for like you know doomed peoples like the misbegotten or the albanorics <laughs> i was just i think that was like a fairly noble pursuit yeah i think Mikola's is a really fascinating character him and ronnie i think are sort of like the dual examinations of you know like essentially uh, building off of what Goldmask thinks of the Golden Order, the major issues that come about from its downfall are that the gods could not decide on inner or outer order, and that's exemplified in Merica being both, you know, herself and Radagon. As Merica, she made champions of the inner order, like Godwin, that would, you know, defend it. But then she also, as Radagon, made dissidents of the outer order, like Rykard, Radon, and Rani, that would eventually, their wars and plotting and scheming would, like, introduce the cracks that began the shadow. Well, and I think part of it is because Merica saw the, saw the faults in it herself. And I that's what, that's, even, oh, yeah? Oh, I, she, I think she even felt the faults in it, you know? She was a shattered person. She felt that well, she had the greater will in Elden Ring in, within herself a lot of the time. So every, you know, she might have been beholden to a lot of that pain and suffering. Yeah, that's why I raised the question earlier, like, you know, when Radicon, when Radagon came in or when they became merged, because I guess like the, it's just, it's an interesting concept to think like, I don't know, part of me thinks like everything was fine at first and it's just America and then maybe she notices some, some issues and some flaws in what's going on and then she develops this other personality. Part of me thinks that Merica was completely aligned with the greater will and everything was fine. And then she meets Radagon and then like Radagon infiltrates, you know, her mind and, and what's going on. And then, you know, like some of the more positive, you know what I'm saying? Like, I got, yeah, sorry. I'm going to try to clear this up a little bit easier in my head, which I have, you know, I don't necessarily have anything to back this up either way, but you know, there's three things like, that, you know, they exist at the same time the whole time, and Merica just has these two parts of her, and she's trying to to deal with that, and what you just mentioned is how she deals with it. She, they're dealing with the outer and inner order. Part of me thinks that, that Merica's all fine with the greater will and is, like, in it full force, and at some point between Godfrey leaving and, or, <clears throat> sorry... I have I should have written these thoughts down, but I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but that's why I found that such an interesting topic, because at what point did she... At what she... point did they become the same person? 
Well, yeah, but and I think I think part of it reflects like some of the decisions that were made along her storyline. Where like, I would I feel agree like the, a lot with that. Yeah, cool. I wish I could clean those thoughts up, but I just I really can't because they're they're not full thoughts. They're just kind of general speculations that have crossed my mind and i've been like oh well it could be this way and like oh it could be that way and that's why i raised it the question at the beginning of the podcast like you know what your thoughts are on it because i feel like that is the most unclear thing in the entire game which you're right like america's a, a pivotal a pivotal force in the entire lands between and so depending on how you look at it and and her her influence and influences like it, it just really determines how you look at the entire storyline of the game. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's it, like I said, it's pivotal. And um, that is something I wondered for a very long time. And I know that it's something a lot of people have put theories forward on. And my take on it is that essentially America, if we want to back it up to the linear timeline, then the Earth Tree is born, Godfrey and his, you know, his host of warriors under the blessing of the Earth Tree's radiance put the giants to the sword, and they also rout the ancient dragons. But it's said that the Age of Plenty that followed the Earth Tree's birth did never did not last for long. You know, its blessings soon dimmed. Um, its uh, its teardrops turned to crystals, and like its sap turned to you know like uh, amber and whatnot. And after that, I think, is when the wars against Liernia and other humans started. There's this quote that you can find on the, uh, the giant crusher hammer that says that man grew weak when, it turned upon, when they turned upon like, their, their fellows. And I think that's reflected in how the Liernian war was against like, the scholars of Raya Lucaria and the people that followed them, and possibly the Elbenorix that lived there. You know, it's not like giants. It's not other beings it's like dragons or the beastmen it's just humans and you can even see how humans have grown smaller since godfrey's days i mean godfrey is the buff elden lord with the probably one of the most powerful like runes ever is obviously probably going to be bigger than most people but i feel like there's something to be said for i don't know humans growing weaker with time and that being reflected with the transition from the Age of Plenty to the rest of the Age of the Earth Tree, and especially again with the transition from the Age of the Earth Tree to just like the Age of the Golden Order, everything was simplified and put one under one order. Anyway, that that was a tangent again. Being linear with it, uh, Godfrey conquer when Godfrey conquers Liernia. They might have, I think that that was when a lot of people were experiencing their first doubts in the Golden Order. You know, they had sacrificed part of the two fingers, they had, uh, they had put the giants to the sword, and what was it for? For the Erda Tree to just dim? For their power to just not be as much as it was? So, for Merica to have her personality be one of sort of peace and like trying to help people. But also being of someone that knows how to like fight, I think there's a strong argument for that to transition into Radagon. Like, for an Empyrean to disobey the two fingers, they can impose their will. But to disobey too much, what if that were to slit your mind entirely into a persona completely loyal to the two fingers? And if the mandate was that you conquer the rest of the lands between, it makes sense that Radagon would make his first appearance in the first Liernian War as the champion that, like, 
lit up the battlefield and fought the fiercest, you know? That's <clears throat> that's a conclusion that I've kind of come to settle on, is that, yeah, I feel like he's almost created as, like, a dual personality, like, I don't want to, like, almost, like, due to guilt or something. Yeah, it's like, um, one of the things that's in the Scar Seals and the Sword Seals description is that the, is that duty can be a blessing. But the gift of duty over time can turn into a burden. So Merica, you know, maybe by that time of invading Lyrnia, her duty had become a burden. So the greater will, you know, it split her persona. And Radagon, for a while, he too was loyal. But even then, he too felt the burden of duty over time. And maybe that's why he went mad and, like, maybe that's why he's locked away the Erda Tree, you know? It's, um, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's a tough one to really draw like a full 100% conclusion on because you could talk about it for days and you would never fully, you know, understand exactly. I, I feel like there, I feel like it was a solid decision on FromSoft's part to mystify that portion of the plotline because it that it just is really left with a lot of unanswered questions and you you could speculate on different points of view on it for you know, to any number, any amount of time and not really ever feel completely, uh, or at least, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I would never feel completely a hundred percent on whatever theory I'd come up with, at least when it comes to the America and Radagon situation. Yeah. I just sort of, I feel like in my mind, I like to accept all of the theories as possible. And it's just the idea that I've thought through them in my head that I enjoy. It's why I sort of indulge in a lot of more crackpot theories. like. When I first played Elden Ring, I was pretty firmly like, yeah, this probably isn't. None of the worlds that the games make are related. But after playing it, you know, at some point I ended up being like, well, you know, the golden pillars in Elden, the Elden Beast's boss room are at the very bottom of the world. If you jump down the center of the Erda Tree after clipping into it, based off of Zuli's uh, video. And we know that the arch trees that you see in Dark Souls are at the bottom of the world, so maybe... Over time, if Dark Souls 1 was the beginning, then it, like, uh, the fire that, you know, the first flame became the primordial flame that the giants had and that was stolen to make the Erd Tree, and that, you know, the Age of Ancients began again after, like, the duel at the end of the world, and, you know, it's all sorts of bullshit you can imagine. Like, the Hunter's like, Dream has those big pillars, and that's why you see them, that's why they're comparable to the Elden Beast's boss room, yeah. you know, it's the same world. <laughs> I think it is all somewhat interconnected, and you see in the plot lines in all of the games that they hold like such levels of similarity. And like, you almost said it like lazily, like it was like, well, this, like this is this, and this is that, and it's like, but the thing is, like, you're probably not wrong. Like, based on the idea of Dark Souls and where it ended in Dark Souls Three, like someone could be like, it's definitely not connected. It's totally different. It's like they basically say that this is going to go on for eternity and like what we're seeing now might be like who knows how many et eternities later in a sense it's like it, it still seems like the same ideas are there you might see different names and different you know symbols but the the ideas remain the same and so to me it makes sense like i i don't find it such a crackpot theory to think that you know, all, all of their universes seem parallel, and I don't think of them, like, parallel side by side. I almost 
Well, it could be parallel side by side, or it could be, you know, like parallel in time almost. Like depending on how you think of it, but there's just such similarities that I don't think it's such a a crackpot conclusion to draw, in my opinion. No, I mean that's fair enough. The flow of time is convoluted in Mordran. And in the gutter in Dark Souls 2, you can find images of, like, crumpled up beer cans, because it's the center place of all trash in the universe. So, maybe we're in there, too. Maybe the Greater Will and Radagon's can suck up there. A uh, quick side note before we go back and do it, and, and you, you know, we should promise no more tangents next time, but I'm thinking of down in Nokron, there are those statues. Are, are those the statues that you were referring to that are, like, super similar to what's in Bloodborne. It's like the kind of like long faces like crawling up there and they're stone. Do you know what I'm referring to? Oh yeah, yeah. The the ones that like sacrificed themselves. They look like the the imagery that's used in like Yahargold, right? Yes. Yep. Exactly that. Um, that's kind of I think there's a possibility that it was like a reused asset in some way, you know, like, the texture and model was made so they could easily convert it. It, it, like, it, it 100% was a reused asset, but I guess the only reason I brought it up is, like, if you're going to reuse the asset, like, okay, so obviously you're going to reuse assets, you know, if you're a developing company, but I just meant, like, I'm not saying they're necessarily connected in their in their worlds, but if you're going to reuse assets like that, you might reuse concepts, because I, I feel like FromSoft very much has certain themes that kind of flow through like almost all of their games. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think uh, I think what's going on there is that in Yahargul, everyone there is sacrificing themselves to either make the one reborn, which is the mortal attempt to create their own old one or something like that. And to do it, they take like the flesh and souls of people and blood echoes and combine them in this disgusting mass. But beyond that, they're also trying to do the Mensis ritual and create the night nightmare of Mensis. While in Nokron, what they're doing is they're sacrificing themselves to create the Finger Slayer Blade in like a last act of contempt towards the Greater Will, so that someone might be able to go kill the, you know, the two fingers eventually. Wow, yeah, no, I, I had not thought that deeply into it, but that makes sense. I guess getting Sorry. back. Yeah, I was oh. going to say, sorry for the tangent, and then, yeah, getting back. No, I love the tangents. I think, like, you know, that's what's fun about doing a lore episode. We dig into every nook and cranny, and... And then we get stuck there for eternity. <laughs> uh, getting back to Godfrey, he, um... I think something really important about Merica and her concepts of the fight with inner and outer order... is, you know, like I was saying, Mikola and Rani are, like, the champions of the, like, the possible goddesses that can re replace Merica eventually that are boring for both concepts. Mikola wants to create his unalloyed gold perfect order, and Rani wants to destroy it entirely because Outer Order wants to, like, you know, keep going, fractaling forever, and then I feel like Inner Order follows the idea of fundamentalism. They guard against both concepts. They want to keep the straight line. Like, if you look at the Elden Ring itself, it's these interlinking line, like circles that are around a straight line going down the middle. And that line represents the golden lineage, while the circles represent the, uh, the great runes pillaged from the dead gods taken during the Golden Order's conquest of the world, you know? Uh, 
I remember I posted on Reddit, there's like this theory about where all of the shard bearers got their great runes and how it affected them. I thought that Radans was the fell gods, and that's why he was able to burn it to resist the Scarlet Rot, and it's partly why he grew so large. Um, Rykard obviously took the Great Serpents, which we know was hunted long ago and killed, so its great rune was probably taken and put into the Elden Ring. Um, Godrics and Morgits, uh, those could go either way, but one of them is probably Placidusixes. I would say that would be Godric, since it's like the one that everything else graphs onto. While the other one that Morgits gets, it's probably uh, Godfrey's great rune that when he was divested of grace was taken back, you know, and given to the, I don't know, put into the Elden Ring, I guess, to the next Elden Lord. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, Speculative. So when they can't, what was that? Oh, I, you said it's. Uh, I thought you were gonna say speculative. Yes, it's very speculative. You know, there's so many different concepts and things going on to look into. It's hard to come to a full conclusion. I think the best way to honestly get into any lore of the FromSoft games is like a narrated playthrough, because so much of it depends on enemy locations, what the enemies are doing, where the items are found, what they're doing in the boss fights. Like, you know, like, get rid of video essays and just discussing it, just like, give a narrated playthrough, I think that's the 100% way. That's tangential. Stay tuned for, uh, for Gideon's, uh... Narrated playthrough. <laughs> yeah, I'll be uh, Twitch streaming, obviously. So yeah, I think something very important about Radagon that can possibly be important is that uh, Godfrey, you know, he conquered, he's essentially supposed to be the undefeated Elden Lord, but at the end of his campaign, he's banished, and uh, Radagon takes his place. But in the meantime of Radagon being the champion of his army, being a champion in his army, when they get stalled out in Lyernia, they don't lose or win, they make peace. And in making peace, Radagon marries Renala. And he anoints himself with Celestial Dew, which Celestial Dew essentially absolves one of sin, and it sort of it resets bonds. And I feel like this could possibly be the beginning of a like an escape from the greater will. We know that Radagon might have if Radagon was born of Merica's disobedience to the two fingers, then maybe when he he was used at first as like a loyal puppet, but then he had the celestial dew put on him. And that sort of that might have freed him from the greater will's influence so that he could then join Renala in her working outer order. Which, mentioning Renala, it's sort of cool. If you look at her in her second phase of her boss fight, she's doing the Outer Order pose as her default stance. Sort of like, you know, she's the queen of the full moon. Well, she's the full moon witch. And, uh, or, I guess, well, one of the theories that I had, that I had seen and also kind of thought, um, <laughs> so you have her first phase, and she seems pretty easy to defeat, which I think... Uh, at some point, I forget what items or which characters mention that she was she was only placed there because she learned, uh, you know, of the full moon. Like it like it wasn't um, there wasn't a lot of reason to put her in the in the position that she was in, and that then you hear Ronnie's voice and that her entire second phase is like it's Ronnie summoning her. Like it's um, it's a summons version of her. Is like one of the theories that I had heard. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Uh, I'm trying to think of it. If I'm gonna be honest, Renala's boss fight has haunted me because it is probably outside of Mog's boss fight. One of the most complex ones that can be broken down to mean various things. Because it's, you know, you have this concept of Renala, who has Here's gone this. mad with the Amber Egg, and has the Great Rune of the Unborn within it. And that was a gift from Radigan to her. So it's like, from the very beginning, you have to be like, what drove Renala mad? Was it depression from Radigan leaving? Was it her trying to use the Great Rune of Unborn? unbirth or rebirth or whatever to rebirth herself as a possible Empyrean, which might have been her and Radagon's plan. Um, or because, you know, she wanted to make an Age of Stars too, I feel like Rani inherits her plot. And then the third option is that if Renala was made powerful by the full moon, you know, if you look at her remembrance, it's the remembrance of the full moon witch. You know, it's the full moon part that's important about her character, and it's that full moon that bewitched the academy, allowing her to become queen. But if the full moon abandons her to choose Rani, then maybe that's what drove her mad, you know? Maybe it was nothing to do with the Golden Order. Yes, and that's what I was trying to mention. So I'm completely on board with what you had just mentioned. So the the full moon betrays her for Ronnie, but then Ronnie goes to protect her. Where like when you are going through her first phase, um, well, well specifically her second phase, that's a spirit summons of sorts that Ronnie has casted to like help protect her. Because after you defeat that version of her you end up in the room and she's still there. Like, you didn't finish her off. You didn't end that fight. And the reason is, is that you were fighting a spirit summons. And I think that's pretty interesting because then that spirit summons summons other spirits as well. And I think that's like a testament to Ronnie's power and and Ronnie's will to bring back the Age of Stars. Um, That's what I was trying to get at uh, just a minute ago. No, I think... um... If I may be allowed a moment of speculation, I think that, you know, breaking down Renala's boss fight, you have uh, Renala gone mad from, uh, you know, being abandoned by her full moon, by losing her power, so she just clutches this amber egg and endlessly rebirths everyone that comes near her because, you know, she's just, you know, she's mad, she's obsessed, she's lost everything she attempted to do, so now she just does the last thing she tried over and over. So when the Tarnished, in somewhat in self-defense, you know, fights her down and she's crawling away, it triggers something. You know, Ronnie learns about it. And like he does say, she does like some sort of spirit summons on Renala. And I think that there's a possibility that what she does is that she rebirths Renala. You know, she, she, Renala is known for, um, all of her rebirthing is made is sickly and unformed. You know, all of the people in her boss room are probably the unwary, like, academy people that didn't get away from her in time that just got rebirthed endlessly until they were no longer even like what they were before. But if Rani has the true power of it, she might rebirth her mother so that her mother can fight you as she was in her prime. And, um... I think that's uh, something that's repeated with the Elden Beast fight and uh, Ram the Vacuous Spider in Bloodborne is that there's this symbolism of a higher plane like that's tied to this idea of a lake and a body of water. So fighting Renala in this body of water where all you see is her god behind her, you know, the, uh, the full moon. It's like you're fighting a mental 
reborn version of her and that at the end of it the reason that she's passive is because you've pacified her you know you've cleansed her of the whatever demons haunted her and uh you know that's, that sort of happens again with morgan's boss fight it's sort of where i got the idea from the idea that you cleanse him of his omen horns when you win the fight against them you know We interrupt your irregularly scheduled broadcast for these breaking announcements. The infamous Dung Eater was seen prowling the Laneville alleyways earlier this afternoon and has been apprehended by the city guard. Going live at the Gelmia battlefield where our glorious Veiled King Morgat combats the blasphemous Prider Rykard, we regret to announce yet another stalemate fought in the Ashen Hills. However, Rykard himself has quit the field, retreating to the Volcano Manor to commune with his Great Serpent. Now, I don't know what he calls it, but that's just what I call a night to myself. We'll be right back after these messages. Do you feel overlooked after the shattering? Are you a tarnished simply looking to make your way in the lands between? Does your ambition feel spurned? All of these are important questions when considering Landell's latest election for Elden Lord. Our King Morgoth proved himself defending the city in its second defense, but what has he really done for the people of the lands between? Is he really the right monarch for you? Misery and curses spread unending through the populace, but all he cares about is the 1% living in the air tree. By the way, he's gone on record for saying some pretty dodgy stuff about the tarnished. You should vote for a lord contender who has the people's wishes at heart, a man who embraced the flame within his own heart. The most beloved, you all know him as Vike the Dragon Spear, brought to you by Great Caravan Incorporated. An update on the Dung Eater situation. After being imprisoned, he promptly went on a rampage of wanton violence, ending with the debasing and defiling of over 50 corpses of his other prisoners. He has been summarily executed in the city square, may he rot in pieces. More as the situation develops. On behalf of the Sanguine Noble Committee, we would like to take a moment to mourn the loss of Rivers of Blood. A ROB spam be remembered as disdainfully as the Medici's was praised. I know that I will and will not miss it, but I will miss you when it comes to the Elden Beast. A final update on the loathsome Dung Eater. He was spontaneously regranted the Gift of Grace and has ransacked the Landal City Square. After much bloodshed, the city guard has thrown his corpse into the sewer jail know knowing he will soon revive. Let his name be forgotten in the coming Shattering War. Before we like get right back into it, um, so I guess not only is that a, a testament to your... Um, you know, skill in finding the story and doing the research and putting it all together, but it's also a skill in FromSoft to, you know, put a story together that actually like makes like a full grown adult like kind of feel like a kid, like he's like listening to like an old fantasy story about an old kingdom. It's it's really cool. I yeah no, I mean I think uh, it's definitely a testament to how good they are at making things. It's that it's that George R R Martin dude. He he pulled through and creating a nice history. <laughs> yeah, I think he made a lot of the stuff with, like, the... I think a lot of the complex interplay between, like, Ronnie and the twins and Morgat and Rykard, that made a really solid base for a lot of the lore to play around. And that's, you know, it's what makes part of it so interesting, because you see all these bosses and people in the lore. They all have their own take on duty, and they all fight for different reasons. So it's not very black and white, and it's just enthralling instead. Yeah, 
not, not only is it not black and white, but it's not right and wrong either. Like there are, there's like right and wrong to each of their stories where they're like, yeah, they're, you know, fighting for certain things. And then they're, you know, in the fight to make a certain idea a reality, you end up like killing other ideas or other realities. And it's like an interesting thing where it's like none of the ideas or realities are necessarily right or wrong. But there are, like, really good parts to them, and then there are also these, like, sacrifices and negative parts to them that really, you know, pull through. It's interesting. In opening one door, you close ten more. <clears throat> yeah, at work we call it uh, the unintended consequences. So, like, if we're trying to, like, solve, like, a problem or something, you know, like, I might be like, oh, like, this is the answer to that problem, but then within that, I never thought about the unintended consequences. And in, in doing so, like, you know, in telling people the time they expect us to be there, the unintended consequence, then they're upset. So, like, yeah, I think there's, like, a lot of un unintended consequences in this. It's interesting. So I guess uh, building off of everything I've set, talked about between Nerica, Rami, and Nicola, I think you see that clash between Golden Order, Outer Order, and Inner Order manifest itself into the Night of the Black Knives. Essentially, all three of these characters are the wisest of their groups, and they can all see the growing fractures in the Order, but they all have different ideas about what has to happen. But at the same time, they all come together in common cause. And while I think that this is, again, speculative, I think that the game teases so much of a mystery about the Night of the Black Knives because it wants you to really think about the conspirators behind it. You know, when I first played the game, I thought Morgat was behind it because he had golden spectral knives and he was an assassin type guy. And that was a complete red herring and totally stupid on my part because, you know, Rajir will t straight up tell you as you start to explore the Night of the Black Knives and its consequences with death, that it was Rani. But when you meet Marani, you know, you, she straight up admits it. And she tells you about it to some extent, but she doesn't tell you the whole of it. So it isn't until you start exploring the other secret parts of the game, until you go beyond the Forbidden Lands to Nicholas Hallig Tree, and you start getting the black knife lore and all of the knife prints and those blades, where you start to learn more about the people behind it. You learn that the black knives were from Newman, the same land that Merica herself was from, Newman being some sort of alternate dimension or distant land across the sea type thing. It's very mysterious. Um, the way that black... you said that Ronnie didn't tell you the whole of it, like... It sounds like you're saying that she maybe, like, withheld some information? I believe so. I think an important part of Rani's character is that she's just sort of chilling in her tower. You know, she did her part in the Night of the Black Knives. She wants the Age of Stars to come about. But at the end of it, she's sort of locked herself into a corner. You know, she lost all of her agency. She has no more allies behind beyond Blade, E.G., and Salubis, and she can't really leave her lands because of the threat of the Tarnished and other people, you know? So she just sort of hides out, and she knows that if any, if she would outright straight state her intentions of destroying the Greater Will, most people would, like, stay away from her. So I feel like she just accepts aid. She doesn't voice her full intentions, and that comes to light when she goes into her doll form. 
when that begins, she says that her tongue is looser in that form, that she doesn't exactly know what she's talking about. And during that time, you know, she ponders how she's going to betray Blade, how she's going to betray Syllabus, how she's going to betray the world itself. And then she talks about you. She doesn't say she'll betray you, but if she mimics Merica's storyline, we all know what happened to the first Elden Lord Godfrey. Like, yeah, uh, yes, and that's the unspoken. That's the unspoken after ending. After you know, if you choose the Age of Stars ending, that's the unspoken bits after that. Possibly, I think there's also a possible. You know, I think that there's a possible argument that for a long time Merica did love Godfrey. You know, I think that. They love their children, Godwin, and then the twins, but like you say, it's the unspoken after bit. What happens a hundred years after you become the lord of your new ending? How does it all stick together? A lot of the times it might not, you know? The other thing that um that I found, you know, interesting, so you say that the the black knives come from Newman, which is the same area that Merica was from, correct? I do indeed, yes. And so, at that point, like, I guess at the beginning of the episode, we were talking about how some of what Ronnie does mirrors what Merica does, and I find it interesting that that is, in a sense, like an integration of, of concepts, in my opinion, where you have, you know, Ronnie in the Age of Stars, and then you have Merica, but then you know, Ronnie manages to utilize, or in a sense, they partner up, like not necessarily partner up, if, but um, shit, I, I have these half-baked thoughts, my entire everything I have is a, is a crackpot theory, but uh, do you understand no, where I I'm mean, going with that? Yeah, because part of it is that Ronnie can't continue her storyline until she meets a charnished, willing to champion her cause. In the same way that Merica, after being defeated by Malekith, can't continue her storyline until getting Godfrey's help. You know, it's, exactly. it, it mirrors, you know, they mirror each other. You, you get to know more about Merica's storyline by learning about Mer uh, Ronnie's storyline. And that goes again with Mikola. You know, I think part while well, Rani mirrors the beginning of Merica's storyline, why she created the Erd Tree, why she turned against the ancient dragons and the beastmen of Faramazula that raised her, I think Mikola's storyline in some ways explores what Merica did to try and preserve her golden order. You know, Mikola wanted to create a perfect Elden Lord. And maybe Merica once thought that she could be her perfect Elden Lord. Maybe she thought that God, by the end of his campaign, had lost his like faith in the Golden Order and that he was a danger to her. So she called, you know, she banished him. She thought that she could do it herself. But eventually she too turned on herself. And like, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's the tragedy of it. The other thought process is not that she thought that he lost his view of the Golden Order, but maybe that... I guess, you know, earlier in the episode where we were talking about the sacrifices that they have to make, and I feel like a certain amount of... Well, I, I mean, I guess I'm calling them sacrifices, but uh, I don't know. There's just so much bloodshed behind it that maybe it wasn't him that was not okay with it, because this guy is like, you know, the... I wish I had better words put together. The to Lord of the Battlefield? Him. Exactly. So he's the lord of the battlefield, and it might not be so much that that she thought he lost sight of it, but that she didn't agree with it, and that kind of like mirrors like Ronnie's 
you know, not wanting to be an Empyrean where it's like maybe they made these certain sacrifices and then sort of realized that that's not what they wanted to do. And then that's where you get these the shattering and these other things where like they have this goal and then certain things occur and then they're like, well, was that worth it? And that maybe is like the shattering, like the idea of this perfect world and then it took so much bloodshed or so much whatever to get to that point and then like the shattering could be representative of their ideas behind it of like was it worth it like that's the shattering it's not necessarily like a a physical thing but i mean it, it was a physical thing because america was in control of it all so when her mind shattered around the idea of what she was trying to achieve then like the world around her shattered because so much of the world relied on what she was trying to create. You know, that's sort of, I think that's a sort of fitting way to talk about it because um, part of America's mindset leading up to the shattering is really interesting. Like you have to think about how broken someone has to be for them to literally take the very thing they swore to upheld something they fought so hard to create and to just break it with the hope that when it gets fixed, things will be better. You know, it's like a leap of faith that destroys herself. Um, if you look at the intro cutscene and uh, compared to how Merica and Radagon look in-game, they only look that way, like, where they have their right arm, or is it their left arm, where the, one of the arms is blown off. Because that was the reverberation, that was the blowback from shattering the Elden Ring. That was what releasing its energies did to her, and she chose that. She chose that and to sacrifice all of her children and everything she made to try and make a better world, because she had given up on this one. Like, like you yeah, said. That's, that, yeah. that's going to show some amount of guilt, and like, and, and like to me that's like you know because she had helped set all that up that's like like wait a minute i fucked up and then like going to in in a sense like sacrifice herself to to fix it it's like i i, I hating hating what you created almost yeah like hating and loving and hating you know it's just the circle for her i think uh yeah. so much of her quotes i really love I, I like Melina a lot as a character. I've seen people rag on her because she doesn't appear much in the game, which is sort of sad. And to me, she sort of appears a lot because I'm, you know, I don't know, I play, I play the game somewhat fast. But, like, she gives such, like, I really love her dialogue. It's so ominous and thoughtful, you know? There's this church outside of Landol where she gives you Merica's quote, and it talks about how Merica doesn't think that you can no longer... She thinks that the people can no longer rely on blind faith and that they have to understand why they follow their faith, you know? She's realized that following the greater will and the two fingers has created misery, that she should never have sealed with the three fingers and that there are things wrong with her order. And, you know, she, like, knows that she has to look past that, you know? She speaks in these vague allusions to higher concepts because she's dealing with them all internally and, like, who could really understand what she's doing, you know? People just condemn her. Yeah, well, it's, um... Speaking of the, uh, the condemned, who were the conspirators? Uh, so in my opinion, the major conspirators were Merica, Mikola, and Rani. Rani is the first one that's very easily tied in, and she's the one shouted at the, 
you know, like, the game shouts are at you. I don't think the mystery ends there. Like, we know, like I said before, we know that Merica knew the Black Knives very closely. And later we learned that uh, the Black Knives seemed to serve her purposes to some extent. Like, they guard Morgat, um, who has been defending the Erda Tree, and we know that America's greatest wish right now is to just keep things in stasis because she wants, you know, Godwin to rise again and her... Well, personally, I think that the Night of the Black Knives goes beyond a simple assassination attempt because its major effect is that enough demigods die during the Night of the Black Knives that when Queen America disappears after shattering the Elden Ring, order falls apart and people declare war on each other. There is no clear heir to the Elden Throne, you know? Maybe the closest people that can claim it are people like Rikard or Radan or Millennia, but then Morgat throws his you know, hat in the fray, and he becomes a contender, and everything gets complicated. But, um... Well, does he really throw his hat hat in there to, to be a contender for it? I, I kind of thought that he was just always opted to be a strong defender of it. I think that's, you know, that's a very good point, and that's a good revision on my words, because Morgat did not go for glory. Very specifically, he hates the flame of ambition that makes people go for go to war to fight each other. He wants to enforce an absolute peace and defend the Erd Tree no matter what, you know? It's sort of, um, I think that a lot of what George Martin wrote in uh, Elden Ring somewhat mirrors what he wrote in Game of Thrones, and uh, Landold mimics a lot of what happens, you know, a lot of King's Landing vibes, like the great city, the, uh, it's unmatched in splendor, and Morgat, like Varys, he wants to keep the peace of the city. He wants to protect it and the Erda Tree and the Golden Order against everything that might destroy it, no matter the chaos outside the gates. And I would like to add, like, the failed infiltration of the city, like, where there was one almost successful attempt, but then it was not successful. I feel like that mirrors it as well. You mean the first and second defenses of Landal? Yeah, right? Like, it was, they never fell. Yes, so the city walls never fell except for the point when Grant Six and the Ancient Dragons attacked at the very beginning of time. The two Please. other attacks are coming up, one after the Night of the Black Knives and then another after the Shattering itself. Yeah. Um, another parallel to the Game of Thrones, and sort of a gross one, is that Mikola and Millennia were probably uh, a lot closer than we would like to think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people are too caught up with Mog and stuff. Like, he's probably bewitched. We have to look at the Millennia being the desired champion of Nicola, which is basically marriage. You know, a goddess and their champion, the the god and their elden lord. Uh, Nicola and his blade Millennia, they were definitely up to... Some hanky-panky. <laughs> Just a little. Uh, yeah. So yeah, these uh, these three conspirators, Nicola, I think want essentially. I think what happened was that Ronnie was needed for the magic. She was the one that could forge the knives. She was the one that could get the steal the rune of death, and she was the one that in America, Nicola's eyes would take the fall for it. But Ronnie knew this, so she decided to betray them at the end of the plot in her own way. I'll get to that in a second. I think that Merica saw the cracks in their own order, and she didn't know what to do. She needed to snap it out of stasis 
and she needed to diffuse the growing tensions between inner and outer order, but she didn't know how to do that. Part of it was that she wanted to unleash Destin to death, but in a safe way that could reintegrate itself into the Golden Order. And I think that's where Mikula comes into play. He's known as the child prodigy. He's like a genius, you know? He's supposed to be probably the smartest person in Elden Ring. So he might have had this idea, and I'm judging this by the two ghosts in Castle Soul, as well as his general vibe, but he might have had the idea that if Godwin, the Prince of the Golden Order, can die a true death, then maybe he can rise again as the Prince of Undeath, and that would fix the Golden Order in some way. So in that effect, the Knight of Black Knives was never meant to be a bloody night of assassination, it was meant to be a ritual that would create Godwin the Golden as the Prince of Undeath, it would mark him with the true Halo-brand of Undeath. But as we know in-game with Fia's questline, we have to reunite both halves. One of them was carved into Godwin's flesh when he died, that obliter it obliterated his soul, and he but he only died a half-death. And that's because Rani, at the exact moment of his death, betrayed her conspirators by carving half of the rune, half of the Hallowbrand, into her own immortal, undying, Empyrean flesh to slay it, freeing herself from the Two Fingers' control, but in, the, in doing so, ruining the ritual. I think from there, Electo, who was the leader of the Black Knives, Electo meaning the fate, the Greek fate that snips the cord of death for like mortal people, um, I think Electo decided to go on a rampage throughout the city of Landol after killing Godwin and failing in the ritual to just destabilize the Order, with possibly some other sort of retaliation. And that's where you find the mausoleums of all of the dead fallen demigods with their souls being obliterated. It gets even more complicated though, because if you go to the royal grounds that are in Rani's secret ending, that you can only access by going through the underground ruins of Naxtella into the upper plateau that's raised above all of Lyernia, there you find the hiding two fingers. They're probably hiding from Rami, you know, to try and stay away from her, like, assassination attempt. Um, and so the Tarnished helps her get there. But something you find also in that area is an Everjail, within it being Electo, the leader of the Black Knives, and you get the ashes for, I think, Black Knife Tish from her, Tish being Electo's daughter. Um, but essentially, what this, what this could mean is that Rani, on that night, imprisoned Electo. You know, part of her betrayal was that she imprisoned some of the Black Knives to destabilize America's control over the world for the coming Shattering, so that there were only a few Black Knives left that were then sent to, uh, you know, defend Morgan or to defend uh, Nicola at the Ordina town. Stuff like that. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, uh, wow. Lots of speculation. <laughs> Not even speculation. I mean, it does, it does make sense. Um, I don't even know what it exactly. Yeah, no, I, that was, that was a, that was a long explanation. <laughs> well, I kept thinking to, like, ask my opinion, and I was just gonna be like, keep going, but, uh, it just, I don't know, it makes sense. I'm not sure even, like, really what to say about it. I don't either. I was just trying to get all of the idea out there so that anyone, like, every, I, you know, it's like a complicated thought. It requires, it sort of feels like it has to be fully spoken to really get across well. Yeah, if you want a minute to just, like, 
think of a response and we can edit. I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm mostly thinking about the. Uh, I'm mostly thinking about the black knives being spread out as a defense because uh, they're like because uh, which um, so I know you get black knife teeth from that area, uh, you know, above where Ronnie is, but so was that their like leader? Yeah, I think um, it's like in Black Knife Tisha's ashes. It says that I'll look it up real quick. Um, it says that she was the leader of the Black Knives. Yeah, and... right. Okay, but so then why are they defending these other points? Are they just trying to defend the rest of the greater? Well, I think that America liked Morgan for defending the. Uh, you That's know, like it's. Yeah, so you have one there. I think that some you, of you them one... chose to serve Nicola for longer, so they're in Ordena. I think the ones in the catacombs are in hiding. Oh, that would actually make sense that the ones in the catacombs are in hiding, because there's the one in the Altus Plateau, um, right when you get in there, uh, after defeating the Wervin, that, um, why, wait, I, I think you said that word differently than I did, but, uh... Wyvern? Wyvern. Uh, anyways, what, do you know that? what I'm ta- You know what I'm talking about? There's the uh, the dungeon in the Altus Plateau that's kind of hidden. Um, right after you you get in there, if you go the back way that uh, Raya talks about, it's like uh, the right Sage's at the, Cave, it, I think. Uh, that might be the name of it. Yeah, it, it. Well, it's yeah, it's to the uh, it's to the right of where you kind of first meet the perfumers, in my opinion. Um, it's got like, like the, the necromancer in it. Uh, yeah, maybe, but it's the first time that you meet the uh, the assassins. I don't have a map in front of me, but it's like right after you enter the Altus Plateau. If you happen to go through um, where that Wervin is, I forget the name of that tower, and then you enter out, and then there's the um. There's those omen guys that you find in the sewers, like the big ones. But then, like to the left of that. There's like a little like hidden uh, dungeon. It was one of the only ones that I didn't get through my first playthrough. And when you go through there, um, there's there's a black knife assassin, and it's like one of the invisible ones. I think it's like one of the first times you can encounter, or I guess not even one of the first, because it's the only other time you can encounter a black knife assassin that is invisible. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Have you been into that dungeon? There's two, there's two bosses in it, actually. It's really off-putting. Have you been in there? There's, yeah, I've done a couple of catacombs where there's, like, a secondary black knife assassin. No, well, this On the wiki, I'm seeing that there's, like, four different bosses, four of them found. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just saying, yeah, in that specific, um, in that specific cave or dungeon or whatever you want to call it, there's... There's like a boss fight that happens, but then like if you like you could think that's the end of it. So in that specific one, there's a lot of skeletons and then you fight them all and you end up at this boss door and you can fight him. But then you don't get like drawn back to the top of it. If you progress through it further, there's a second boss fight and the second boss fight is the Black Knife Assassin. And in that one, he's invisible, which the only other spot that they're invisible is Liturgical Town. And does that one drop the uh, the Concealing Veil, do you think? Um, it is Sage's Cave. Okay, because yeah, that's what the Necromancer and the Concealing Veil. Okay. 
Well, speaking of Sage's cage, that actually has a really funny, like, <laughs> I don't know, just weird little uh, tangent going on, because there's this entire concept of necromancy in Elden Ring that isn't really, it feels cut. You know, I think I read in an interview that the incantation and sorcery system was implemented somewhat later in the game's development, because they were thinking of putting in a different spell system. And I think that's supposed to be emblematic of how different spells work for different previous goddesses. You know, you've got the old arcane sort of uh, um, dragon invocations. It's not. It's called some. It's called something special. I can't remember. It's like what you do to eat their talking. hearts and what the drake wardens do. And then you have incantations of faith for gods, and then you've got sorceries for knowledge. But like. There was like this unfinished hex concept in the same way that in Dark Souls 1 to Dark Souls 2 the hex concept was added. And then there's this unfinished sort of necromancy idea. All of the different Rancor spells, along with the Omen Barons, uh, create these dark spirit-looking things that are essentially the game's way of like illustrating imagery-wise like a soul that's angry, like an angry spirit, and that's why they chase you and do damage. And they require both faith and intelligence, which is interesting. It is interesting. Um, Rykard notably does that with his ultimate attack, and then you can steal that ability from him by using his own like soul, with, like his remembrance. Um, and the necromancer. The... Oh god. Oh, <laughs> oh, nothing. I was just gonna jump to the beast spells as well. Yeah. No, I would have loved for more beast incantations. Uh, speaking of them and incantations, if you look at the. Uh, the godskin apostle that uh their incantation caster it looks like the claw mark amulet from the too. beast incantations with an obsidian stone laid into it uh sort of like an idea another of my ideas that the godskin apostles are from the ancient time of the beastmen comes from that idea and how they look similar right as much as i'd like to go on talking about the spell system and aftermath of the night of the black knives we're well over our hour mark, so I think we'll have, we'll have to save the rest of it for a part two. What do you think, Uh Yeah, you know, this has been really interesting, uh, and I've learned a lot about the complexities of the lore, as well as thrown out some crackpot theories, but I'd have to agree. Uh, we'll have to come back with a part two. There's just too much ground to cover in the Lands Between. That's right. You'll have to check back with us in a fortnight to see our next episode, where we take a deep dive into the consequences of the Night of the Black Knives, the ensuing shattering and its many battles, and how everything just sort of falls apart afterwards. Not to mention some actual finality of the secret of Necromancer Garrus within the Sage's Cave. Yeah, and I'd like to hear from our listeners, like if there's anything you guys want to hear on the Elden Ring lore, or just uh, ideas for episode topics. Um, we're definitely open to covering some uh, different things that you guys might be interested in. Uh, thanks for watching and letting us know your thoughts and theories down below. And uh, make sure to check out our sponsor Discord, our Elden Ring discussion, which is now hosting a fan art contest for original FromSoft art. Definitely worth checking it out. Yeah, I think they've even made their own subreddit over there for it. Uh, while you're at it, eldenwingpvp.net is a great website built by some real knowledgeable conference content creators such as Amir, Orphicos, Ouroboro, other people, and many more people. You can get the full list of contributors on their website. It's got a survey function to gather feedback from the community, well thought out articles discussing various mechanics, 
and even a rather vast yet unorganized、uh, collection of PVP data for utilities. Yeah, I remember when I checked it out.、Uh, I particularly liked the spreadsheets where you can input、uh, your stats and your weapons and whatnot to see damage output. It was really cool and well put together.、Uh, very professional.、Um, but yeah, anyway, so finishing things off, we are happy to announce that the PC DS3 servers are back online as of 8:25. So, y'all better be best getting online to celebrate.、Uh, thank you for joining us at the Roundtable Hold. This has been Cosmosis. And this has been Gideon. And、uh, yeah, goodbyes are hard. <laughs>